So please turn with me to Mark 9, 14 through 29. This is where we will behold and consider the wonders of God and his word this morning. Mark 9, 14 through 29. We just continuing right along in Mark's narrative. Question I've probably asked before in this sermon series, what is the biggest challenge you are facing right now? What, what is it that in, induces anxiety? You know the, when your palms start getting sweaty and you feel the, the heart uptick a little bit in, in uh, your, your uh, heart rate? What, what is it that you perceive as, as the greatest threat, the greatest problem you're facing? Well, what if I told you whatever it was, it is not your greatest problem? Now, this isn't to minimize the, ri- the, the threat, the problem itself, right? Or the trial, whatever you're facing. Rather, it's to put into perspective what is actually the greatest threat. In fact, it's often the things that we perceive are the greatest threats that have a, have a way of revealing what the greatest threat actually is. And what is it? Well, if you followed along in Mark, it should be as no surprise to you. It's unbelief. Unbelief in God and in his promises. All of scripture, this revelation of who God is, is given to us to show us who God is and what his promises are. And the call is to to treasure him, to believe him above all else. In fact, last week, I, John, pointed out in his sermon that the prevailing problem with Israel under the judges in the promised land, was that they trusted in themselves rather than in God. They made idols to serve their purposes rather than submitting their lives to God. They did not trust God. They placed trust within themselves. So they refused to take hold of God's promise for victory. They did not believe God or his promises. This, unbelief, is the greatest threat to your life. Now, I know what you're saying. Unbelief, again, Why do we have to keep coming back to this? How many sermons are we going to do on this idea? How many times are you going to preach it? Well, I'm only preaching what Mark has written down, what God has given him. So you you can take it up with Mark, and he just won't let it go. Mark will not move on from this problem of unbelief. Obviously, he and God thinks it's important enough to keep us coming back to it over and over again. And perhaps it's because we are so prone to not consider it as dangerous and as insidious as it actually is. Out of sight, out of mind, I have bigger problems to worry about right now. But unbelief is the poison and the cancer to the immortal life, as we saw uh, in Jesus' call to discipleship. So God keeps showing us here in Mark again, that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is the cure, right, for this unbelief. And we've reached a turning point in Mark. Remember, up, up front in the first half of Mark, it's been Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and he has all authority, and that has been displayed after authoritative act, miracle after miracle. And now, in this turning point, we see that it is about Jesus, the Messiah, who suffers, who will serve. That is how he will reveal his salvation. That is how he will rescue. And the call is to follow him in that. In fact, there's only two more instances of miraculous deliverances from this point on in Mark. One of them is here this morning in our passage. So Mark continues to focus on then 
what it means to follow Christ in this path. And that cannot be done without faith, belief in who he is and his promises, treasuring him above life itself, as we saw recently. In fact, our passage today, this individual narrative, has the highest concentration of explicit uses of faith words and some implicit faith concepts. Words like faithless, unbelief, believes, believe, and faith concepts like prayer are more concentrated here than just about anywhere else in in Mark's narrative. So the point is that the threats, even as we will see today, demonic threats, reveal the underlying need for more faith in God, for faith in who he is. And our passage this morning gives us a picture of, of that faith, what it looks like. It's faith that's defined by the object of the faith, Jesus, who came to destroy the works of Satan, deception, unbelief, oppression. He has the power to rescue us, and he desires to rescue us, he is the perfectly faithful one. This is what we'll see this morning. Look at Mark nine fourteen through 29. Follow along as I read if you have your Bibles open in front of you. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were, ama- were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth, he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd, that, the, that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So we'll consider this passage in two parts. First, verses 14 through 28, we see the situation of slavery. Slavery to Satan and slavery to unbelief. And then second, we'll see in verses 25 through 29, the response of rescue. Divine rescue. From unbelief. There's an exhort- the exhortation of this passage is really this. Believe this. Just as our theme says, God is a God who rescues. It's who he is. So look with me first at verses 14 through 24. The situation of slavery, slavery to Satan, slavery to unbelief. 
First verses 14 through 15 give us the context. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around him and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. So Mark is setting the stage for action. Remember uh, the context a little bit, the little bit broader context. Immediately what has just happened, Jesus has been on the mountaintop of his glory. God has revealed his divine identity and said, this is my son, my beloved son, listen to him. And we made the case that, that what that was showing is that, that Jesus, not only in his divinity, is, is also the one to whom all scripture, represented by Moses and Elijah, all prophecies, all prophets, everything in the Old Testament is about him. He is at the center of it all. It all culminates in him. And then we saw in that descent that, that we have a picture of Jesus in his d- descending from his divine glory, setting aside his rightful glory, setting aside his rightful crown, coming down the mountain. And what is he coming to? He's coming to a valley of darkness, despair, oppression, enslavement to Satan, and unbelief. This is a picture of the gospel. Jesus came down, the Son of God came down from his glory to rescue us from these very things in the valley. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That is the context here. And so here Jesus comes to his disciples arguing with some scribes, and it has drawn a crowd. So upon seeing Jesus, they, they are amazed and run to him. We, we don't know if perhaps there's some lingering effects from his glory. Remember Matthew said his face shone like the sun. This would fit with when Noah came down, or Moses came down from the mountain, his face glowed. So they're amazed. They're staggered at his appearance. They come to him. Perhaps the disciples have a look of shock on their face still. I imagine they do. But they, but they come to him, and we see uh, the situation fleshed out a little bit more in the next couple of verses, 16 through 18. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So here we see the presenting problem, slavery to Satan. But we also see an underlying problem that the presenting problem reveals unbelief, specifically the unbelief of these disciples again. So first, Jesus asks why the argument, and a a man from the crowd answers the the, the boy's father. He says, I brought my son to you, and perhaps not finding Jesus, he said, well, I'll go to the next best thing. His disciples, they are like him. I've even heard that they've been casting demons out. So I brought them to your disciples, but they were not able to do it. And this led to an argument. Well, we don't, so this somehow relates to the argument. We could speculate, are the scribes and, and the disciples arguing about purity laws? Uh, should they even be around this unclean spirit? Uh, what are our theological points of authority? We don't know exactly the nature of the argument, but just step back for a second and consider the whole scene. I think that's the payoff. When man is left to himself, chaos, utter dissension. They cannot figure this problem out on their own. And, and arguing and, and bickering comes about. I don't know if you've ever been on a sports team that 
perhaps maybe wasn't very good or something, but if you, if you have that experience when all of a sudden you're overwhelmed by a dominant opponent and you get in the huddle and usually what happens initially is there's a lot of, uh, why didn't you do this? No, why didn't you do this? Why, this was your fault. A lot of blame shifting, right? There's just dissension. That's kind of the picture we have here, right? Nobody knows what to do. So this is the presenting problem. And, and some have speculated that perhaps this actually isn't an unclean spirit, but, but this muteness and, and, and these seizures actually point to, some, to an epileptic condition like epilepsy. Well, the passage is going to make clear the narrative and Jesus by his own words that this is 100, it's 100% clear this is demonic oppression, not physical sickness. The, the boy is oppressed and enslaved by Satan. But underlying this presenting problem is the unbelief of the disciples. Specifically, the boy's father says that they did not have the power or the strength. It's the same word we saw regarding the demoniac in the Gerasenes. Nobody had the strength to subdue him. The disciples are not able. They were not able. So this is the the twofold situation, presenting problem of the unclean spirit that is oppressing the boy. And, and Jesus makes clear here in his response that, the, that, that even in the midst of the unbelief of these disciples, he will move to rescue this helpless child. So look with me at verses 19 through 20. First, the first half of 19, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? So Jesus affirms our conclusion. Jesus laments over faithlessness. This is a little shocking in a way. The first thing Jesus laments in this entire situation is not the evil spirit that is enslaving this boy, the first thing he laments is the faithlessness, the unbelief of the disciples and this generation, all of humanity. Two questions. Does this seem harsh or unloving to you? I mean, look at Jesus' words. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you, you faithless generation? Actually, this is infinitely loving. Jesus will not let faithlessness go unaddressed. And thank God he doesn't because it means salvation for you and me. Because Jesus is the solution for this faithlessness. He doesn't just call it out and then say, see ya. No, he identifies the faithlessness. And even in the midst of it, he will move to rescue. When we, we can learn from this, when we lovingly call out unbelief and faithful, faithlessness in one another, which is something we are called to do, our, our, our master, Jesus, does this. We are his disciples. We do this, and it is loving because we do it while holding out Jesus, salvation. We don't divorce the two. Second, do you see the vast difference between Jesus and humanity here in this lament? Jesus says, 
Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? Jesus is not of this generation. He came from outside and completely different. Mark wants to highlight this, specifically the underlying condition of unbelief over against Jesus' perfect faithfulness. We are faithless. He is faithful. And he moves to rescue. Yes, Jesus has a distaste for the faithlessness that marks unbelieving humanity. And how long will he bear with it? Jesus will bear with it and endure with it until that faithlessness costs him his life in order to save. So look at the rest of verses 19, uh, the rest of verse 19 through 20. Jesus says, bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. So in the face of this unbelief, Jesus calls for the boy to be brought to him anyway. And as if we needed any more evidence of Jesus' divinity, look at the demon's reaction, right? We've seen this over and over and over again. Every time the, uh, an unclean spirit comes into the presence of the Son of God, panic. They just go crazy. That's what's happening here. So Jesus moves to rescue in spite of faithlessness of this generation. But like a good physician, he is not satisfied just to take care of the temporary problem. He probes deeper to the hidden underlying issue of unbelief. We've seen it here with the disciples, and now we will see Jesus do the same thing with the boy's father. Look at verses 21 through 22. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So have you ever asked someone a simple question and all of a sudden they just begin to unload on you, right? You're, you're just, I just thought I was asking one little question and all of a sudden you get a deluge, right? You've probably heard Cody say, and we talked about it in a course seminar this morning, that Jesus had a knack, a unique ability to say the exact right thing that needed to be said at the exact right moment for the, the exact right person, right? And here Jesus certainly out of compassion for the boy in the situation, says, how long has this been happening? And the floodgates open, right? He says, from childhood, and then goes on to say everything that is happening. And the picture we get here is one of an excruciating trial. The father can't help but, but unload everything to Jesus at this question. Uh, it's a young boy, and, and apparently for most of his life since childhood, this has been the situation. This father is always in fight-or-flight mode, always at 100. He has no chance to relax because at any moment, this unclean spirit could cast his son to the ground, and at any moment, his son's life is threatened because of this. How many times has this father had to bandage and heal burn wounds only for once the bandage is taken off for the, for the, the unclean spirit to immediately cast him in the fire again and have to rescue him again? How many scars... How many times has this father had to resuscitate his son from being thrown into the water? This is, not, uh, this is not a little trial. 
Perhaps it puts some things in perspective for us, but also perhaps we can relate to the sense of the feeling of no relief. It never ends. So Jesus' one question uncovers the Father's desperation, but also uncovers the Father's hopelessness. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So the Father asks for compassion and help. This word help conveys the idea of come to my aid, rescue me. That's where we get the theme for this morning. God, the Lord, rescues this word help. That's what it's conveying in the original language. So this is the right request. Jesus is, in fact, incarnated help from God. He is the son who is on the mission to rescue man. This is the right question. He also doesn't give this help begrudgingly. He gives it compassionately. We've seen it over and over again in Mark. Uh, this compassion moves Jesus to act. Mark one forty one. he had compassion on the leper and healed him. Mark uh, 6.34, he had compassion on the 5,000 who were like sheep without a shepherd. And he fed them. Mark 8, he had compassion on the 4,000 who had no food because they had been with him for three days. And he fed them. So certainly if God's acting on our behalf were dependent upon us, we would be lost. But here we see that his grace and his, he, is, he is gracious and compassionate to rescue. So again, this boy's father asked the right thing. However, they needed more than just rescuing from this unclean spirit. And Jesus won't let this, he won't give temporary relief without addressing the eternal issue here. So the father had qualified his, his uh, request, right? He says, if you can do anything, if you are able. Over and over, as we've said in Mark, trials and tribulations, we think we need uh, rescuing from these things. But God wants to reveal the deeper issue of unbelief. And so like a good physician, he does not simply treat the symptoms. He does the necessary surgery to remove the cancerous tumor. This is the loving thing, and this is what Jesus does. Verses 23 through 24, Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So Jesus calls out the man's unbelief and corrects him, and the man's request morphs from rescue my son, rescue this family, to rescue me, rescue me. Again, we can consider this could be heavy-handed, the way Jesus responded here. But again, we see that it was the most loving thing Jesus could do. See, Jesus' respo- his response makes clear that the root of the man's doubt is not actually how big the problem is. It's not because the circumstance is so great that he does not believe. It's actually personal. He says, if you are able, the root of this man's doubt is because he does not believe Jesus. Same for us. We can point to the circumstances of our situation as the reason we struggle so much. 
And again, this does not minimize the situation as we've seen here. This is a harsh reality. People are probably wondering, Jesus, why are you talking about theological stuff right now when this boy could, is, is on the ground writhing? Don't you see the urgency here? Jesus sees the urgency. The word of God tells us that our unbelief is first, it first and foremost has to do with unbelief in God, not our circumstances. We simply don't believe God. And so Jesus, if he wouldn't have responded the way he did here, would the man have responded the way he does? Furthermore, if, 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 we are, are, uh, if, if, if Jesus did, did not respond the way he does, would this man have even known of his unbelief? Would he have made this cry for help? Jesus has no ulterior motives here other than to save this man. And so when we think about ourselves and when we are called to, uh, to do the same thing Jesus does here and call out unbelief, we have to make sure that we don't have a two-by-four sticking out of our eye when we go to remove the speck from our brother's eye. Jesus has no ulterior motives. He is doing this out of love. He wants to snatch this man from the fires. Conversely, if we are the one who is called out for our unbelief, we also must remember that faithful are the wounds of a friend because they come from love. So Jesus uses the man's circumstance to uncover the greater threat, his slavery to unbelief. And the man responds with perhaps the most authentic prayer in all of Scripture. I believe, help my unbelief. This is what faith looks like. It looks like coming to to God with our doubts, very aware of our weakness and saying, help me with this. And in fact, that is faith in God, who is the only one who can rescue. Faith is trusting and treasuring the only perfect one who believed God. All things are possible for the one who believes. This is the gospel. God is able and powerful and strong enough to save, and God wants to, desires to, and compassionately does save, And the good news of the gospel is this, that when we were faithless, Jesus was perfectly faithful. He was the perfectly faithful one. And because of that, he can do anything. He can save us even in our unbelief. And so this is the call of the gospel. It's to believe that God is able and to believe that God does move to save that he desires to. This is his character. He is powerful to, and he is willing to. Do we believe that? Do we believe that Jesus was the perfectly faithful one? Do we take hold of that promise? Jesus saved us when we were faithless so that we can follow him in faithfulness, believing in who he is, that he went to the cross to make his righteousness our own. This is precisely what he does here. Look at 
his full response, his rescue in verses 25 through 29. Two parts here. Jesus responds with rescue, and then Jesus prescribes a means of rescue. First look at verses 25 through 27. Jesus rescues despite this mix of belief and unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So despite the man's doubts, he hears Jesus' rebuke, and he exhibits true faith, ironically, by asking Jesus to rescue him from his unbelief, showing true saving faith. He takes hold of the hope in Jesus. So Jesus, seeing the crowd, perhaps this is a cue again to Jesus will reveal himself in his time and his way, right? Doesn't want to make this a spectacle. Jesus commands deliverance, and Jesus grants deliverance. Satan did not stand a chance in the face of the Son of God. And the picture here is instructive for us. The boy looks dead. And Mark uses the same language. Commentators point this out over and over. Mark uses the same language here as he did for when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. He took the hand, he raised up, and the boy arose. This is going from death to life. That's the picture here. This is death to life, Jesus raising the dead. Jesus is salvation. Unbelief that leads to death does not stand a chance in the face of the Son of God. So the question we've alluded to is faith in God. God's the object of the faith. But it was never primarily one about his ability The question was one of believing that Jesus will rescue, that it is God's will to rescue. That's his character. We can believe in an all-powerful God who can do anything, but if we do not believe that his character is to save, then we have no faith in him. You see, The character of God is compassionate, sacrificial, love. It rescues and saves. And so we trust in that despite the circumstances of our lives. Do we believe that he will ultimately rescue and save? That is the question. We see the object of the Christian faith is a God who not only has the power to save, but the will to save. So... This leads to the second part, going along with God's will to save here. Jesus prescribes a means to bring about this will to rescue. Look at verses 28 through 29. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So here's a wonderful picture of discipleship. Bring, bring to Jesus your questions, right? Come to him privately, and he's shaping and molding these disciples in their doubts and in their questions. And what do they ask him? Why could we not cast out this demon? And we, we've already seen that Jesus has 
has made the point when he lamented the disciples' lack of faith that it was because of their lack of faith. It's their lack of faith, we say. Which is why Jesus' answer might be somewhat surprising. Jesus says the reason they could not cast out this demon was because it was a kind that could only be cast out through prayer. Now, we could speculate, we could do some demonology here and try to, like, oh, this means that there's higher-ranking demons than others that are more powerful, and this one is particularly violent. We can see that, sure. This, this seems to be a point that's being made here. But Jesus still cast it out with a word. The object of faith did not change. It didn't matter what level this demon was. A word does it. The object did not change. So essentially, what Jesus is saying here is you were not able to cast out this demon because you didn't pray. Because you did not pray. Jesus laments their lack of faith and then connects that lack of faith directly to the result that they did not pray. Matthew in the parallel passage makes the point that the disciples could not do this because of their lack of faith. Jesus said to them, because you had little faith. So think of why the disciples may not have prayed. They've cast out demons before. Jesus empowered them to do so. Perhaps they're thinking, they've grown to think, oh, I do this on my own. I don't, this isn't God working through me. This is me doing it. And the disciples' lack of faith manifested in and was proved by their lack of prayer. So this is a remarkable point for us. Our faith is tied directly to prayer. Specifically, lack of faith is apparent here because of lack of prayer. So Jesus is making clear that prayer is a work of faith. Jesus expects and instructs the disciples to pray for God to deliver. This is the means by which his will would have taken place. They will not and cannot deliver by their own strength. Rather, they must actively work out their faith through prayer. If the disciples then would have prayed, the opposite must be true, then they could have cast out this demon. Prayer is a work preordained by God for us to walk in. Ephesians 2.10. Prayer is just one of the applications I want to draw out here as we move to the Lord's Supper. First, this narrative exhorts us to recognize a few things. First, recognize that spiritual warfare is raging. If you do not you will not fully recognize your need for Jesus to intervene in your life to rescue through the power of the Holy Spirit. Satan has come to deceive, kill, and destroy you. To not acknowledge this is reckless, arrogant, and foolish. We cannot resist through the power of Christ what we do not acknowledge. We have to recognize spiritual warfare rages. And growing out of this, we must recognize that we need help. And on the flip side, we must recognize that we need to offer help. 
First, recognize you need help. Don't keep your needs from God or your brothers and sisters. The church is the body of Christ, the community, the means by which God helps us bear one another's burdens. To refuse help is reckless, arrogant, and foolish. We were not designed to overcome in our own strength. When we are weak, that is when God's strength is made perfect. That is how he rescues through our humble recognition that we need help. Your threats, they're very real. But the first step of faith is to say, I need help. And on the flip side, we must recognize that we need to be ready to give help. This is a task given to us. If I need help, that means my brother or my sister needs help. I need to be prepared to give it. That's what the body does. Third, recognize that the biggest perceived threats in your life reveal the underlying doubts of unbelief, which is the greater threat to your life. This should be our prayer. Rescue me from my unbelief, as we said, perhaps the most authentic prayer in Scripture. Recognize that the trials you are facing, while real And painful are revealing corners of your heart that you keep back from God to trust him. And pray to God for help. So, final point, recognize that we must pray. Well, what is prayer? It's communion with God, certainly. It is is seeking God uh, in, in worship, communing with him in his presence, treasuring him, enjoying him. But here our passage makes clear that it is also a work of faith. It is also evidence of faith. If you want to gauge on the, on, on the, the belief and unbelief and the, and the faith and lack of faith in your life, look at your prayer life. It seems to be an implication here. And if it's a work of faith that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in, and consider this. We often ask the question, does our prayer really do anything? Well, if God is sovereign, if he is in control of all things, if he has, set, if he, if he, if he has ordained all things, then that means he has ordained for you specific prayers for you to pray that bring about his will. Take up the work of faith and pray. This is what God has willed for you to do. Before your days were written in the book, God set aside prayers for you to pray. You, to bring about his will. And this is evidence of of your faith and believing, and believing that God is a God powerful and able and willing to rescue. I've been so rebuked in reading this passage to see that my lack of prayer is because I have a lack of belief in who God is. Pray. Let's take up this work with the knowledge that it will actually accomplish God's will because he planned for it too. Take up the work of prayer. In fact, we're going to have a time of prayer right now. I'm watching the clock here, so we'll 
still got to come to the table. But right now, we'll just take a few minutes to take up this task, this privilege to pray, to, to work our faith, to evidence our faith. We're going to pray for the life of this church. So if you would, close your eyes with me, just taking a few minutes. As you feel led, would you, would you offer a prayer? Pray in your heart, certainly, but offer a prayer aloud for the life of this church, for the life of the lost. And after a few people pray, I will close this time.